um, squarely. So David and Saul have parted. They never interact anymore. And so the chapters alternate. And they're centering around the same event. There's a large battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. Last week, we looked at chapter 27 and chapter 29 together because it's David's posture towards that battle. He has moved to Philistia. I said it was a sinful decision. You may disagree at a minimum. It was a poor decision. Uh, he's, so he's living in this foreign country. He lives there for 16 months. He's deceiving the king. So he's in, he's lying for 16 months, saying he is attacking Israelite settlements when he's actually attacking Canaanite settlements. And that leads to him being conscripted by the king to fight for the Philistines against the Israelites. Got that? So you're going to come fight with me against your own people because I think for 16 months that's what you've been doing. God graciously delivers David from having to make that decision. There's some other kings who say, we don't want David fighting with us. We don't trust him. He doesn't, he's, he's uh, removed from having to make a very difficult decision. Uh, today we're going to look at what Saul is doing in preparation for that battle, starting in chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his descendants, or excuse me, to his attendants, find me a woman who's a medium so I may go and inquire of her. There's one in Endor, they said. So we're going to pause there. Uh, there's a map up there on the screen just to give you some sense of the geography. So the, the Philistines start down there in the bottom left corner and they work up to that top, to the middle, that star that has a two in it. And then the Israelites gather at that yellow star. That's Gilboa. It's a series of hills. And so Saul is at the yellow star. The Philistines are at the red star. And Saul gets really, really scared. His heart trembles within him. So this is a pretty deep incursion from the, by the Philistines into Israelite territory. It's not a border skirmish. It's a very bold and aggressive move uh, to try to take that valley. And Saul is scared. They have more people than him. And so he does once in his life, we see him do the right thing. He asks God, what should I do? What should I do? And God doesn't speak to him. God doesn't speak to him through dreams. That's personal revelation. God doesn't speak to him through the Urim. Those are, we don't know what that is. There was these two things, Urim and Thummim. We don't know what they were, but they were used by priests to discern the will of God. The issue is Paul is, or excuse me, Saul is, he's killed all the priests. He killed them all in chapter 22 when he wiped out the town of Nob. There's only one priest that we know who's still alive, Abiathar, and he's with David. I don't know if there are any other priests. If there are, God's not speaking through them. And he's not speaking through prophets. Samuel's dead. He's the national prophet. He had a school of prophets. He most likely told them, God has rejected Saul all the way back in chapter 15, probably 20 years ago, at least. God has rejected Saul. So Samuel's dead, and the guys who are following him are not working on behalf of Saul either. And so Saul's got, he, he's really scared. He's facing this battle. He's seeking the Lord, which is the right thing to do, and God is not responding. So he comes up with this brilliant idea, we need to find a witch. That's what I need. I need a witch. And so his people find one up in Endor, that blue star up there, a couple of miles from where the Philistines have set up camp. Now, we saw, at just introductory, Saul had, had uh, kicked all of the mediums and spiritists out of Israel. That's important because that means Saul knows they were bad. 
He knows that God was those guys were not righteous in God's sight, that God was not pleased with people who would seek them. There's some scriptures there up on the screen that speak about God's posture towards mediums and spiritists. He cuts off. That's a nice way of saying kills people who go see them. And them, he says, you should stone them. You should not just kick them out of the country. You should stone them. God's not a fan of mediums. Those are people who channel the spirits of the dead. And then spiritists, your Bible may say necromancers. Those are people who raise up spirits of the dead so they can speak for themselves. So you're looking for some information and you seek the dead to give you that information. You go to a medium who would channel the spirit. You would go to a necromancer or a spiritist who would call that spirit up and then that spirit would speak directly for him or herself. And that's what Saul says. That's what I need. God's not speaking to me. I'm scared. I need I need information. And so he's looking for Samuel. That's what he wants. I need Samuel to speak to me. Uh, Verse eight. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night, he and two men went to the woman Consult the spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Now you think about that. We just read what God said he does to spiritists and mediums. And Saul is swearing in the name of God that God won't punish her for doing things God has said he will punish her for doing. That's how backwards Saul is in his understanding of the Lord. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, you've deceived me. Why have you deceived me? You're Saul. The king said, don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? An old man wearing a robe is coming up. Then Saul knew it was Samuel and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. Again, you think about that. God's not speaking to me, so maybe you can. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has turned the kingdom excuse me, has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. When the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands. I did what you told me to do. Now, please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so you may eat and have strength to go on your way. Saul refused and said, I will not eat. But this but his men joined the woman in urging him and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it and baked bread without yeast. And she set it before Saul and his men and they ate. And that same night, they got up and left. So, Saul, royal robe is what a king would usually wear, very conspicuous. He's walking near a Philistine camp, so he puts on regular person clothes. He goes at night to this woman and says, I need you to bring somebody up. And she says, you're laying a trap for me. Everybody knows Saul's kicked us out. And Saul, again, says, you're not going to get hurt. 
I promise I need to talk to Samuel. And then she does whatever she does, abracadabra, eye of the newt, and she brings Samuel up. And you can make a decision at that point. Did she actually see something? You can say, no, she was a, a liar. She's not a woman of high character, absolutely. You can say she saw a demon. I think she saw Samuel. It's a plain reading of the text that she saw Samuel. If you just read it straight through, that's what it seems to indicate. So she sees Samuel. I don't know exactly what it means for her to call her up. The idea, Sheol, is the place of the dead. The Hebrews at this point think it's in the center of the earth. So when everybody dies, righteous or wicked, they all go to Sheol. The New Testament, that word is Hades, not hell. It's different. So they're in Sheol, and it's everybody's there. And then at some point, there's a resurrection, and people are judged, the righteous and the wicked. So she calls him up, because in her mind, he's in the center of the earth. And his spirit, or soul, however you want to see that, comes up. Saul can't see, because he's saying, what do you see? And she says, I see this old man, and he's wearing this robe. And that word for robe is the same word used to describe Samuel's clothes throughout um, 1 Samuel. So it's, it's Samuel. Saul, Saul can talk to him, but he can't see him. And again, I, I think it really was Samuel. It's a plain reading of the text. And their, their conversation seems like a conversation Samuel and Saul would have. He knows things about conversations they've had in the past. He knows things about David being God's anointed, that Samuel is the one who anointed him to be the king. And his message is very consistent with what he said to Saul the last time we see their conversation in chapter 15, which again is maybe 20, even 25 years prior. There's some consistency there. So I think it was Samuel. How did she call him up? I don't have a clue. Not, not one bit. There's nothing in there that says, you know, what she did in order to get Samuel to come up. But he says, why did you disturb me? There's a sense in which, you, you know, you, you're the instigator of this. God obviously allowed uh, Samuel to come up to this woman, I think, in order to pronounce final judgment on Saul. Again, it's been 20, 22, 25 years since chapter 15 when that word was spoken. I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hand and give it to someone, uh, to a better man than you. And now that judgment is coming uh, close. Within 24 hours, you're going to be dead. Your sons are going to be dead. Y'all are going to be in Sheol with me, Samuel says, and the kingdom's going to be given to David. Again, I don't know exactly what that looks like. Uh, I do think there's a spiritual power there that she's tapped into. If Saul said, hey, bring up my mom, I don't know if she would have been successful. She's surprised. You know, she is shocked. I don't know if she's like, wow, it worked this time, or if she's shocked that because it's Samuel and he's a righteous man and she's thinking, I don't... That's never happened before. So for whatever reason, she's surprised. But I do think it was Samuel that she saw. And then Saul and Samuel have this conversation. And Samuel is basically saying, what do you want from me? God's not speaking to you. What do you, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm a prophet. I speak the words of God. If he's not, speaking to, he's not speaking to you, he's not speaking to you. Everything that's happening is what I predicted would happen. It's what God would said would happen through me those years before. You've been rejected because you were disobedient. Chapter 15, you did not take care of the Amalekites when God clearly said, do this. He clearly said, wipe them out. And you didn't do that. And so you've been rejected, and now that judgment is, is coming home to you. Saul's response, he's laid out on the ground. He's filled with fear. He hasn't eaten. And then, it, to me, it's a really weird scene. This witch becomes like the, a host. Here, let me feed you. And she doesn't just... Feed him. It's like Christmas dinner. 
That fattened calf, that's the best. Most people don't eat meat on a regular basis, and they certainly don't eat fattened calves. That's the special Christmas turkey that you've been saving, and that's what she feeds him. It's his last meal, and so maybe there's some symbolism there for Saul, because he is dead within a day. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks when we look at chapter 31. So for us, thinking about that, what is that what, where does that land for you? Where does that land for me? One thing I think very clearly from this chapter, we live in a spiritual world. For some of us, that can be hard to get our minds around because it's not a world that we access through our five senses. And so because we don't access it through our five senses, sometimes we can tend to think, well, it's not, it's not real. It's maybe a parallel for you would be the difference between your brain and your mind. If we cracked open your skull, we would see your brain, but we wouldn't see your mind. We can do a scan on your brain. We can't do a scan on your mind. They're both real, but one of them is physical. Your brain, your mind is not, but it's no less real. The spiritual world is real, even though you don't necessarily see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, and hear it. Jesus, his life demonstrates the reality of the spiritual world. Just one little passage in Matthew 12, you see him casting out a demon, referring to Satan, and referring to the kingdom of Satan. You have all of these pieces that speak to a spiritual reality, just in those a handful of verses. So we live in a spiritual world, and if you're a follower of Jesus, if it's hard for you to get, get your mind around, I just encourage you, read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus believed in a spiritual world, and as a follower of his, I would encourage you to do the same. Again, it is pre-scientific, but that doesn't make it wrong. Just because it's ancient doesn't make it silly. Just because you can't access it empirically doesn't make it untrue. We live in a spiritual world. Jesus said so, but there's nothing to be scared of. When Jesus casts out a demon, what he's demonstrating is he's stronger than the demon. That's what he's saying in Matthew chapter 12. There's a strong man, and I'm stronger than him. In order for me to cast this demon out of this person, I had to be stronger than the demon that was in that person and stronger than the power that was behind him. So if you're connected to Jesus, you live in a spiritual world, but you don't need to be scared of it. If you're not connected to Jesus, you live in a spiritual world, and you maybe need to be careful. You're on your own in that sense. It's another reason to follow him. I would encourage you. So we live in a spiritual world, nothing to be scared of. Halloween's coming up. I hate it. I can't wait till Wednesday. I love candy. I hate Halloween. So here's what I would say about all that when it comes to evil and demons and Halloween. You can absolutely, there's all kinds of ways you can have fun with Halloween. Candy, costumes, all of that, that never approach darkness. Stay away from all of this. I don't understand why we celebrate fear and gore and death. I don't know, when did those things become good? But there, there, that's, there's an element of that that people celebrate on Halloween and promote. And I would say stay away from that. Just stay over here. Stay on the candy side. <laughs> stay here. Not here. The reason the Bible clearly says stay away Stay away from mediums. Stay away from spiritists. Stay away from omens. Stay away from people who cast spells. In the same list, stay away from people who sacrifice their children. We would never think of doing that. They're all in the same list. Stay away from sorcerers. Stay away from all of those things because you're accessing spiritual knowledge and you're accessing spiritual power apart from the Holy Spirit, and that is super dangerous. Super dangerous. It's sinful because you're trying to get something That's God's apart from him. If you want to know something, you don't need to consult your dead relatives. Ask the Lord. And if he wants you to know, he'll tell you. And if not, don't do an end. Don't try to do an end run around him. 
That's what all of those things are doing. Ouija boards, seances, psychics, all of those things are saying, hey, we can give you insight into the future. They're either con men who are just taking your money and preying on your emotions, or they're tapped into a spiritual power that's not the Holy Spirit. Either way, you don't want anything to do with it. Very cryptic. Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, he talks about uh, food being sacrificed to idols. And he says, we all know idols are nothing. They're wood. They're stone. There's nothing to them. And yet there's a spiritual power that stands behind them. You don't want to mess with that. What participation do you want to have with the demon? None. All they want to do is ruin your life. Why in the world would you want to engage with them on any level? We know an idol is a, it's an inanimate object. But there's something real that stands behind that. A tarot card's a piece of paper. But there very easily could be a spiritual power that stands behind that. Reading your palm is silly. But there very easily could be a spiritual power that stands behind that. Don't engage in that stuff. The Ouija board's a board game. But there very easily could be a spiritual power that stands behind that. Don't engage with that stuff. It's sinful. You're trying to access spiritual knowledge apart from the Holy Spirit. And it's dangerous because you could very well be engaging with, this, with a demon who only wants to ruin your life. Why would you do that? It's both sinful and dangerous. So you avoid all of that. Halloween moves us. Not It can move us in that direction. Stay with the candy. It won't. If you start engaging in this stuff, what you're doing is you're, it's, they're decorations. It's a movie. Whatever, the, but there's, is there something behind that? It doesn't, your motivation is irrelevant. If you leave your door unlocked, it doesn't matter why you leave it unlocked. If a thief comes and turns the knob, he's coming in. He doesn't care why you left it unlocked. Your motivation is irrelevant. The same thing is true spiritually. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. It's just for fun. I don't believe in any of it. I'm sincerely seeking. It doesn't, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is if the door is open, the enemy's going to come in. If you give him an opportunity. Nothing to be scared of at all. If you're connected to Jesus, he's stronger. And it's not even close. But there's no reason to engage. There's no reason to open these doors Again, on some level, we can say those things are silly. They may be silly, but what stands behind them very easily could be satanic. And you don't want to engage with that at all. So we live in a spiritual world. We don't want to access that spiritual world apart from the Holy Spirit, but we absolutely want to access that spiritual world in the Spirit. One of the ways that we do that, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, he defines prophecy as encouragement, comforting, and strengthening. Acts 1, 8 says we receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on us. Why? In order to be witnesses to people who don't yet know Jesus. You have access to an incredible amount of spiritual power. The God who created everything, seen and unseen, somehow dwells within your heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, it doesn't make sense. How does infinite live in finite? It's a mystery, but it's true. Paul says in Romans 8, the, the, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you. That's not power for its own sake, and it's definitely not power for our sake. It's power for the sake of others. You can be a, a, a conduit, a channel of that power. That's part of what it means to be a priest, a, a mediator, a go-between, God and other people. We can be priests to one another, and we can be priests to those who don't yet know Jesus. 
One of the easiest ways, I think, to access that power is through that gift of prophecy. Don't hear predicting the future. We don't do that. Don't hear directing people. We don't do that. Strengthening, encouraging, comforting. Encouraging, pat on the back. Strengthening, giving someone a hand up. Comforting, putting your arm around someone who's struggling. That's what we can do. You did that on those cards. You may not know it, but that's what you were writing on those cards. Those were prophetic words. I don't do that. You just did. You just did. And it wasn't hard. It's just encouragement. And it's encouragement that doesn't just come from you. It's this sense of, it's not just what I think, it's what God thinks about you and about this situation. If you've ever been on the receiving end of one of those words, it can be life-changing. There's, a, there's an impact that comes when it's the Lord that's it's just stronger, it's deeper, it's more profound than even the best-intentioned words that come from someone you love. You, as someone who's following Jesus, you have access to that power. Paul says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. So do that. Especially desire that one. And don't hear predicting the future and don't hear telling somebody what to do. Hear encouraging, strengthening, and comforting. Well, what if I'm wrong? Then all you've done is, in strength, is strengthen or encourage or comfort somebody. It's not a big deal. That's good. There, you, you can't lose. If you're a follower of Jesus, you hear his voice. And you don't just hear his voice for you. You can hear his voice for other people. And some of you have been on the receiving end of those words. And you know how powerful they are. You can also be on the giving end of those words. And nothing has to change. It's just a matter of awareness. God, I'm meeting Terry for lunch. Anything that you want to say to him that would be encouraging. Maybe I see a picture. Maybe I have a word, like literally just one word that pops into my mind. Maybe there's a Bible verse. And so then we meet. I don't say... Carrie, thus saith the Lord unto you this afternoon. What I say is, hey man, I was thinking about you today. I don't, and this, this idea, this word just popped into my head, and I hope it encourages you. And it does or it doesn't. And then we move on and have lunch. That's it. That's it. Totally available for all of you. The idea, some people, maybe depending on your church background, well, God doesn't speak like that today. There's nothing. Paul does not say eagerly desire spiritual gifts until the Bible is completed. He doesn't say that. He says eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Don't hear that in some super spiritual way. Hear it as you're you're hearing the Lord for people who God loves. You may not know them, but he does. And he wants to encourage them. And sometimes the way he wants to encourage them is through you. Uh, Last thing. Where do you turn when you're desperate? It's a hard shift. Paul is desperate. He's afraid. His heart's trembling. He's distressed. That's the word for the emotions you feel when you're being squeezed. And he's being squeezed. He sees this army that's moved deep into his land. And he's going, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do here. And he's a great warrior. And he's going, I don't know what to do here. Maybe he's outnumbered. I don't know. Maybe he just senses God's not with him. I don't know. But he feels squeezed. He's distressed. He does the right thing initially. He inquires of the Lord. But when he doesn't hear God, then he does a a sinful thing and goes and looks for a witch who can bring up a dead prophet to try to tell him what to do. You're not going to do that. But what do you do when you feel afraid, when your heart trembles, when you're in distress? Both Jesus and Paul say, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
when Jesus in the, the parable of the soils in Matthew, Mark, and Luke talks about uh, the second type of soil. It's shallow. It's got rocks in it. There's not deep. The, 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 the seed is received by the person. And there's an initial, it's received with joy, Jesus says. And there's this initial yes to Jesus. But then the roots can't go deep because there's these rocks and the, the soil is shallow. And then the sun comes up and Jesus says that's persecution. And when persecution comes because of the word, this plant fades. It withers and dies. It doesn't stand firm to the end. It doesn't make it. We want to be people who have deep roots. We don't want a, a shallow heart. When we hear persecution, most of us think being beaten, being thrown in prison, being killed. It's not going to happen to us. If you live in this country, that's not happening to you. I want you to hear persecution as difficulty that you face because of your commitment to Jesus. And all of us are going to experience that. All of us at some point are going to say, my prayers are hitting the ceiling. All of us at some point are going to say, I'm worshiping. I'm not, I, don't, I don't connect to the Lord at all. All of us are going to say, I'm living a life of obedience and everything is falling apart. I feel like I'm putting good in and getting terrible out. All of us at some point are going to say, I don't sense the Lord at all in anything. We're going to have those stretches of time and it's not going to be once. You're going to experience those stretches, those seasons of your life. And in those moments and in those times that may be days or weeks or even months. Do you have roots that are deep enough to see you through? Is your faith in God tenacious enough, strong enough, that when you don't hear his voice, when you don't sense his presence, when he doesn't seem to be responding to anything you're asking him to do, that you don't go find a witch or whatever your version of that is, that you don't fade away, that you actually stand firm until the end? Two things you can do to develop that type of tenacity using marriage as an illustration, commitment and connection. You need both. Commitment, that's your wedding ring. It's volitional. It's a choice that you make. I'm using the word institutional, which is a terrible word, but I couldn't think of a better one. Maybe you can. It's the idea that this thing is bigger than me. This is not just about us. Marriage is much bigger than us. And and I make a choice to, to be with her. And she makes a choice to be with me. And it doesn't matter how we feel. And that's what a ring symbolizes. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if the feelings that you're experiencing are opposite of the feelings that you think you should experience as a husband or a wife. This is we made a commitment, for better or for worse, for in sickness and in health, for richer or for poor. And the same thing with the Lord. There's this commitment that says, Jesus, if you're not answering me, I don't care. If I'm not sensing your presence, I don't care. If you're not, if you're not working the way I think you should, I don't care. You're the king and you're the Lord. You're the pearl of great price. And so you're worth it. And I'm in. I'm in. It's commitment, obedience, daily obedience. If you'll be obedient in the small things, then you develop a habit of obeying regardless of results. So that when things become difficult, you've already gotten in the habit of obeying and you'll continue to do so. It's too late once the pressure is on to say, I'm going to start obeying. You're not going to do it. It's too hard. If you haven't developed a, a discipline and a habit of, being, of responding quickly and obediently to the Lord, when things get difficult, you're not going to do it. 
It's just like those of you who are married. If the time that you choose to begin to connect to one another, communicate to one another, the time you begin to try to solve problems, the time you say, I'm really with you, if it's blowing up, it's too late. You don't have the discipline in place. Commitment. It's the touchy-feely. It's the subjective. It's the thing that makes us go, it's squishy. Some of you love it. Many of us don't. It's the, it's the hand-holding part of a relationship. You need both, commitment and connection. You develop connection through worship. It's one of the reasons we spend time in worship every Sunday. It's a great opportunity. I would say it's the best environment for meeting the Lord relationally, for experiencing God personally. And again, it's subjective and it's emotional and it's squishy and it can be manipulated. All of those things are 100% true. And it's vital. How many of you go long in a relationship where there's no connection? How many of you are looking for that in a spouse? A relationship without connection. It's called a business relationship. It's transactional. That's all it is. Commitment without connection makes you a Pharisee. Now, connection without commitment makes you fickle 100%. That's why we need both. You cultivate connection through worship. And not just on Sundays. Personally, privately, on your own time. You don't have to sing out loud, for sure. But this, there's worship can help move us into the presence of God on an emotional and relational level in a way that I don't know any other discipline that does. And so I would encourage you, do both. Some of us are commitment-oriented. Some of us are connection-oriented. Know yourself and lean the other way. Lean the other way. Make sure that you're strengthening both of those muscles. That you're walking in daily obedience to the Lord. As he prompts you, you're moving. When that, may, when that pops in your mind, hey, you, when you have lunch with Terry, bring this up. Like, bring it up. Say it. I was thinking about you and this popped into my mind. That's daily obedience. Do those things as you're prompted by the Spirit. Also, cultivate a life of worship. Two times, three times a week. Are you spending any time, 10 or 15 or 20 minutes? In worship, just allowing the Lord uh, to connect to your heart and your heart to connect to him. And again, for some of us, that's like, oh my gosh, it can be so hard because it feels so squishy. But you need both of those things, commitment and connection. You're not going to have deep roots. You need both of those to develop the tenacity to, to, to stand firm until the end. Thing, at some point, God's not going to respond to your prayers the way you want. At some point you're not going to sense his presence. At some point, the Bible is going to be brittle and dry to you. It's going to, feel, it's, it's going to be like reading a different language. At some point, nothing in your life, everything you touch is going to turn the opposite of gold, whatever that is. And in those moments, do you have the tenacity, the persistence, the perseverance, the, the deep roots to stand firm into the end? Side note, for some of you who are parents, I would implore you, don't create, don't create an environment for your kids where they never have to develop these, root, these deep roots. They're with you for 18 years, a fifth of their life, and then they're not with you for 80% of their life. One of the best gifts that you can give them is for them to learn how to experience difficulty 
how to experience times when things are dry, when circumstances aren't working out. And we have this thing, and it breaks our hearts to see our kids suffer. And I'm not saying that you have to throw them to the wolves at all, but I'm saying please don't swoop in too quickly. God doesn't do that for us, and he's a better parent than we'll ever be. I was, without any specifics, just I would implore you, when you're tempted, ask the Lord, is this the time for me to step in and make it right or not? Sometimes it's going to be, yeah, step in and be a mama bear or whatever that looks like. And sometimes it's going to be, stay, sit down, sit down. It's between me and them, God's going to say. They're learning. They're developing deep roots. Don't rob them of this lesson when they're in the safety of your home. And you can walk alongside them and help pick up the pieces. Don't make the first time that they struggle when they're away from you and you're not there. It's difficult to watch them suffer. It's harder to watch them fade away. Let's pray. Bo's going to sing, and Ashley, I think they're going to sing, and I just want you to stay in your seat for this first song. We talked about a lot of different things, kind of all over the map. I just want you to grab onto one of them, kind of chew on it before the Lord. Maybe all the way back, you may still be at the paralytic. I'm that guy, and I need to get to Jesus, and I can't figure out how. Just ask him. Confess that to him during this time. You may be parents. I'm thinking particularly parents of teenagers and you're wrestling. Someone's struggling in your home and you're wrestling with how involved to be. Do you step in and do you try to make it right? Do you sit back and it's very difficult to do. If you're here and that's you and maybe you and your spouse just need to grab hands and pray and just say, God, you got to show us. you got to show us what to do. Our desire as parents is to step in. Is that the right thing? What does that look like? Maybe you just want to pray for your kids during this time that they would develop deep roots in the Lord, that their faith would be tenacious, that they would stand firm into the end. Maybe someone in that commitment, connection thing. Maybe you're swirling around that. You know you're lacking one or the other. Maybe you want to ask the Lord. Maybe you've never really sensed his presence. Maybe you've never heard his voice. Don't, I'm not talking about through your ears. I'm talking about in your heart. I just want to ask him. That stuff scares me. All that subjective, emotional. Not, I, that's not my world. you got to help me. Or maybe you're on the other end. You're all about the feelings. But when the feelings are gone, you're as fickle as the day is long and you jump from thing to thing to thing. Some of you, maybe you've engaged in some things that were dark. You've done, you participated in a seance. You've done the Ouija boards. You've gotten the readings, the psychic readings. You just need to repent. It's super simple. God, I confess. I, I didn't even know what I was doing or maybe you did. 
I recognize now that was not good. And so I repent of that. I pray you forgive me. Any access that the enemy had in my life, I want to cut that off now in the name of Jesus. I don't want him, I don't want an open door into my heart or into my home. You may just want to ask the Lord about that. It may be something from long ago that he would bring up. kinds of things to grab onto today. I just encourage you to grab onto one. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you work in the hearts of the men and women in this room? Would you show us what a faithful response to you looks like this morning? So many different things. Just show us what's a faithful response. Would you give us hearts to obey however it is that you would prompt us to obey this morning in Jesus' name.